Well, it is a wonderful thing to consider that um, the God who created us, though we took our lives and decided to live them for ourselves, nevertheless so loved us that he sent his son into the world. He sent his son into the world for you. It's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? And he entered into the world as a man for men, and he lived a righteous life, not to prove his righteousness to anybody. He has nothing to prove to anyone, really. He lived it so that he could give us something that we don't have, that we can't manufacture, that we can't create, that we'd never get any other way, but freely as a gift from him, and that is righteousness. He came into the world to give his righteousness to you. And not only that, but then the one who knew no sin, the perfectly, the infinitely righteous one, became sin, darkened and stained for me and for you, suffering and dying for me and for you. He endured death and the grave for you that he might then be raised for you. That's a wonderful Savior. And as we learned this morning, where is he now? He is seated in heaven, interceding, advocating for you, and one day he will return also for you. Well, since the beginning of the Advent season, really the end of last year, we've been studying the story of the life of that incredibly wonderful Savior as Luke presents it to us in his gospel. And for the last seven weeks, we have been studying Luke's explanation, his exposition, his illustration of one statement by that Savior. And since it's been seven weeks, I thought it'd be good to go back and read it again, because we're going to continue in that exposition, in that illustration. We read this in Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 23. It says, And Jesus said, and the next word matters, he said it to all. He didn't just say it to a group of people in Palestine 2,000 years ago. He's saying this to me. He's saying this to you. It's like he's standing before all of humanity and saying, all right, here's the deal. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to be my disciple truly, here's what it entails. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, here we go, you ready? Let him deny himself. And what I said seven weeks ago still stands, which is that the Greek language that underlies that statement in English, let him deny himself, makes it incredibly clear that what Jesus is speaking of is a one-time decision. It's this singular moment in time where by God's grace, by the power of his spirit, no doubt in conviction and in accordance with his word, you and I, either consciously or subconsciously, decided to stop playing around with Jesus. And not because we felt obligated to do otherwise, not because we felt guilty if we did, not out of, you know, some kind of a requirement, certainly not out of some idea that if we just serve Jesus and make him happy enough, then maybe he'll do some things for us, you know, he'll fix this, he'll take care of that. No, 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 none of that. But because we beheld him for who he is. He's too beautiful to ignore. He's too significant not to live for. Listen, it doesn't even make rational sense not to live for him. There is no greater value in all of the universe than Christ. Life matters most in living for him. It's speaking of a singular moment in time where we said, all right, I'm going to stop playing around with Jesus. And for those reasons, I'm going to stop pretending like I'm God and he's not. I'm going to stop trying to enlist him in my petty schemes and dreams and plans and so forth as though his plans are not vastly and unimaginably greater. And I'm going to deny my plans. And I'm going to get involved in what he's doing. I'm going to make the call. I'm going to get off the fence. 
I'm going to go all in on Jesus. Okay, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him do that. And then let him take up his cross, which is the language of death. How frequently? Daily, every single day. And follow me for whoever would save or preserve his life as he would define it, as he would construct it, as he would pursue it, as he would live it. If there was no Father, Son, Holy Spirit, heaven to be gained or hell to be feared. What happens with that person? Jesus says, whoever would save or preserve his life, whoever would live it like that will lose it. Because you can't see Jesus for who he really is. You can't be captured truly in your heart. You can't have the transformational work of Jesus actually transforming you in here and continue to be the same out here, to live this kind of life. He says, look, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, whoever makes the call, gets off the fence, says, you know what, I'm going all in on Jesus. How can I not look at how wonderful he is? It's the single greatest use of my life. And then gets up every day and reaffirms that decision by dying to his desires, dying to his passions, dying to his agendas, dying to his ambitions, dying to life as he would have otherwise lived it if there were no Jesus, no God, no spirit, no heaven, no hell. That person, he says, will save it in the end when he dies and enters into eternity. And so the statement that Jesus made is that, and we looked at it seven weeks ago, and as we continue now, to look at Luke's exposition of that, his explanation and illustration of what that means and looks like when it actually shows up in our lives. Here's what we'll learn about Jesus. We will learn, this is not necessarily a shocker, that Jesus often behaves in unexpected ways. It's true, isn't it? Oftentimes, Jesus does things in with our lives, in and with other people's lives, and in the world that we're looking at and going, whoa, at times that we do not expect that he's going to do. And oftentimes, he does not do exactly what we're confidently and just so sure that he will, in fact, do. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it. And here's what happens in those moments. At least if it's kind of a bummer, we're very disillusioned. You know, from our perspective, we look at it and go, man... That makes absolutely no sense to me. And so then what is following Jesus in those moments when it makes no sense to me and to you look like? It looks like you and me getting up in the morning and reaffirming that decision that we made to deny ourselves and to live for Christ by dying to our expectations about how Jesus is going to behave and what he will and will not do. And trusting that from his perspective... Guys, it all makes perfect sense. So we pick up our study today in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, where Luke says this. He says, now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues. This is important on the Sabbath day. So the scene has changed from the last couple of weeks. For the last few weeks, Jesus is teaching out in the open air. He's teaching to tens of thousands of people. He's teaching not on the Sabbath day. This day, he's in a small Jewish village in a small Jewish synagogue. You could fit 10 or 15 of these synagogues in this room. Packed full of people, no doubt, because, well, it's him. And he's teaching on the Sabbath. And then Luke says, behold, and man is that an important word because it's a word of sight. What Luke wants you to do is to see the person that he is now about to describe. And to see as well, I think, that Jesus is actually the only one in the room who notices her. It's like she is invisible to everyone 
but him, but he wants her to be visible to you. And so he says, behold, there was a woman, and now he describes her, who had had a disabling, evil, demonic spirit afflicting her for how long? For 18 years. And now notice this, as a result of that, what is her physical condition? She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. So can you see her? Can you see that person? Because what you need to understand when you hear that description is this is not a subtle condition that she suffers from. Like, you don't need to be a physician to discern that she has this. This is what isn't like when you tried out for football in junior high and you had to go get a physical, you know, and the doctor made you take your shirt off and he checked your spine, among other things, and maybe he said, oh, it looks like maybe there's a little bit of a curvature. No, that's not what we're talking about. Her spine looks like a question mark. Her head, when she walks around is in such a posture that her face looks straight down at the ground. She can't see the trees and the birds and the sky and the clouds, and she can't see you if you're standing in front of her trying to have a conversation unless she turns sideways and kind of cranks her back and neck and rolls her eyes up toward the sky so she can look into your face. Does that help? So yesterday I'm thinking about this. And I'm driving down the street, and I see the guy, the homeless man in our city, you know who I'm talking about, who has the same condition. He's sitting probably right now, I don't know, it just rains, so maybe not, but he typically sits about a half mile north of us. If you go through the tunnel, you come up the other side heading north, on the east side of the road, before you get to Broward, before you get to Starbucks, there's like a little empty lot right there, and there's a bus bench, and that's where he sits most of the time, as far as I can tell. And I actually saw him yesterday walking down the street, and his spine is so curved in such a way that his face literally is flat, straight down, looking at the ground. Okay, that's how I picture this lady, and I think that's fair. It's funny, as I was looking at this guy, not funny, ha-ha, there's nothing funny, ha-ha about it, but curious maybe is a better word. As I thought about that man, saw him yesterday, I'm thinking... You know, every time I look at that guy, I look at his condition and I think to myself, it's a medical condition. That's the deal. You know, I mean, I even diagnose him. It's called ankylosing spondylitis. Somehow I knew that. No idea how. I was a personal injury lawyer. Maybe that clears it up. But but really, he has a spinal disease called ankylosing spondylitis. And when I see him, I think, oh man, that is a bad case of ankylosing spondylitis. That's his condition. And yet Luke describes this woman very differently, doesn't he? I'll bet she had the same condition. If she went to the same doctor, she'd get the same diagnosis. And I think it'd be an accurate diagnosis. I think that's actually what that guy had. I think that's actually what she has. But what's the cause of it? She has been subjected to the affliction of a disabling, evil, demonic spirit for 18 years that has bent her low physically. And that really ought not to surprise us. I mean, as you think that through and you just think through it biblically, which is the way to think it through, I mean, from the first page of the Bible to the last, one of the things that we see again and again and again and again is that Satan and sin and sickness and disease and death are not disconnected. They're not separate issues. They're all different threads of the same exact fabric. It's a fascinating thought, isn't it? But as this woman and these people in the synagogue are about to find out, and very much contrary to their expectations. Watch for expectations today. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to do something different than they expected, at least initially. He came into the world to defeat Satan and to defeat sin and sickness and disease and death along with them. And so here's this lowly woman wincing in pain, seated on the cold, hard floor of this little synagogue, invisible, or so it seems, to everyone there, though Jesus will in a moment notice her, and sitting there, I think, like she did every single Sabbath day in faith. Now, why do I say that? Because I think it's pretty clear from the narrative that she didn't just show up on this particular Sabbath with the hopes that Jesus would heal her. Oh, Jesus is there. You know what? I'll go today. I don't think that's the deal. The universal interpretation of God's law regarding healing on the Sabbath was that unless it was necessary to save a life, it was forbidden and indeed it was sin. So if she's looking to be healed, she's come on the wrong day. And then secondly, she shows up, she sits down, and she asks nothing of Jesus and does zero to get his attention. I mean, it's not like she sat down and then raised her hand and went, hey, Jesus, over here, over here. You know, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is awful right here, this thing. And I've had it for 18 years. And, you know, so here's the thing, like, can you heal me from this? I understand it's a Sabbath and all that stuff. But, you know, like tomorrow morning, I can come by at nine o'clock or whenever it works. Let's make a date. I don't think she expects to be noticed. I think she's invisible to everyone but Jesus and thinks that she's invisible to him. And yet, Luke says in verse 13, and I love it, it's so encouraging, it says that when Jesus saw her, now please notice what he notices about her, what he sees when he sees her, because it's not just that her spine is bent, but it's that her soul is straight. It's pretty cool. Now, I say that because in a couple of verses, he's going to say, this is a daughter of Abraham. Now, what does that mean? It's of somebody who has the faith of Abraham. Well, what does that mean? It's somebody who realizes that they've taken the life that the Creator created for Himself and lived it for themselves, and they can't do anything to undo it. But it's somebody who also believes in the promised one of God who is Christ Jesus, the wonderful Savior who lived, suffered, died, was buried, and risen again from the dead that we might be forgiven, made new and clean, and have everlasting life. I don't know that her understanding was quite that sophisticated at this point, but it's a salvation by faith. That's the idea. And yet she's bent over. And again, she's bent over as a result of the affliction of a disabling, evil, demonic spirit who has afflicted her, incidentally, not for 18 seconds or, you know, 18 hours or 18 days or weeks or months. She has been afflicted by this spirit for 18 years, which I also have to believe is something she didn't expect. That's just not the kind of thing you set out in life thinking, well, yeah, you know, I don't know, maybe that really rare thing will happen to me. It's just not. You know, we look at all the things that happen to other people, and that's who we expect them, incidentally, to happen to, isn't it? It's like there's this long laundry list of really difficult, painful, unbelievable things, and we just kind of move through life expecting that, no, that's the kind of stuff that happens to other people. But those of us who have lived long enough realize, no, actually, sometimes those are the kinds of things that happen to us. And we would do well to remember, I think, when those things do happen to us, that they're not just a physical issue or a financial issue or a relational issue or whatever, but they are also profoundly spiritual. 
And we would do well to remember, too, this reality that, you know what? Hey, and he doesn't hide this. Jesus doesn't always behave the way that we would expect him to. He does things we don't expect. He doesn't do things we do expect. And from our perspective, unless they're really awesome things, which happen, which happen. But when they're not awesome, in our opinion, we kind of look at it and go, man, you know, this doesn't make any sense at all to me from my perspective. And so following Jesus in those days... And those seasons, all right, means dying to my expectations about how he's going to behave and what he will and will not do, and trusting him, trusting that somehow in ways that I cannot even begin to imagine, from his perspective, it all makes sense. And so then Luke says in verse 13, that when Jesus saw her, he does see her, and it's wonderful, he called her over from her little obscure spot on the floor where she assumed she was invisible. And you can imagine what that must have been like for her. Like all of a sudden, she's being called out in a room full of people, and, you know, this is her. And she's already endured the indignity of this for 18 years. She's heard the whispers. She's heard the comments. She knows the opinions of people in her tiny little town who believe that this condition is probably the result of some private sin that even in their tiny little town, nobody knows, or worse, as a result of some public sin that she did, in fact, commit and that everybody in her little town knows about. They've blamed her for it. They whispered about her. The last thing she wants to do is be a spectacle in the synagogue. And yet, the Lord calls her to move toward the middle of the room and to stand there before everyone. I think about 23 shades of red, maybe a little bit of sweat, that he might make her a trophy of his grace. It's a marvelous story. He calls her over, and then before them all, Jesus said to her, woman, this is awesome language, you are freed from your disability. And then he laid his hands on her, and immediately she rose up and was made straight. And so the posture of her body, by the grace of Christ, was made to match the posture of her soul. And then, you know, at least as I imagine it, and I, I, I think I'm right in this, I think she raised her hands and her head to the heavens, which she hasn't been able to do in like forever, and she glorified God there in front of everyone. But now we read that the ruler of the synagogue, whose job it was to maintain the faithful readings and teachings of God's word in that little synagogue, in that little village, and whose spine was straight, but as we'll now see, his soul was bent And that is a far worse condition. He was indignant. And not because Jesus had healed this woman, but because Jesus had healed this woman on the Sabbath. I mean, this wasn't a life or death issue, for crying out loud. Set an appointment for tomorrow at nine. Heal her then. Everybody agrees this is sin. At least that's the way that he presents it. And in that day, that would have been true. Everybody except for one person. And he will speak here in a moment. So the synagogue ruler, who's indignant, said to the people there in that synagogue, who were apparently beginning to join into this woman's celebration, but who got shouted down by this guy pretty quick, he says, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on one of those days and be healed. And not on the Sabbath, because again, the universally accepted position was, unless it's life or death, healing on the Sabbath is sin. But here's the problem. The law giver is there. 
And it's possible for everyone to be wrong and God to be right. Indeed, here's an example. Jesus is going to say, and it's quite unexpected, hey guys, all of you who think that, that's wrong. It's amazing. It says, then the Lord answered the synagogue ruler, and not just him, but anyone in the room who just went from going, wow, this is incredible to, yeah, no, he's right. When he got shouted down by the synagogue ruler, he says, you hypocrites. Okay, do you ever read the language of Jesus and just wince? I mean, really, like, do you? It's incredible. He is so direct at times. Said in the first service, it's clear that he did not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He just, (laughs) he did not. But I would encourage you, you know, when he speaks directly, not to be offended by that because he is the altogether virtuous man. He is the perfect, righteous son of God. He is never excessive, and neither is he ever deficient. His responses to everything are always flawless. This is exactly what this deserves, and Jesus gives it that. He says, you hypocrites, and then he takes them apart. Does not each of you on the Sabbath, he says, untie his ox or his donkey for crying out loud from the manger that you've tied him to and then lead it away to water it even though those animals could clearly last till sundown without water. Sundown's when the Sabbath ended. So then, Jesus says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, someone of far more significant value than an ox or a donkey whom Satan has bound for 18 years be loosed from this far more significant bond on the Sabbath day? And now notice what happens. I mean, it's inevitable. There's no way this doesn't happen. As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And how could they not be? I mean, it's like Jesus says that, and it's just game over. You got anything to say in response? Yeah, no, I'm just, mm-mm. <clears throat> I think we're good. You ever happened to you? Have you had that happen? It is a frustrating experience. I remember when I was nine, so this is a very silly example. But I was telling this to my kids this week. It's why it's on my mind. But when I was nine years old, I was arguing with my friend over how to say the word Italian. Because my folks are from Chicago, and they said, Italian. Pass the Italian dressing. Oh, what are we having for dinner? Italian sausage. We're going to go to the Italian restaurant. So I'm arguing with John Nicholas, my nine-year-old buddy, and we're going back and forth like, and I'm passionate about it. And so I'm going, it's Italian. And he's like, it's Italian. And I'm like, it's Italian. And he said, it's Italian. And I said, it's Italian. And he said, really? Are they from Italy? <laughs> you win. I was furious. I went home to my mother. I'm like, it's not Italian. It's Italian. We look stupid. Cut it out. Jesus undoes this guy completely, and he looks stupid. And he's none too happy about it. But all the people are happy. They rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by Jesus. And it's funny, you know, we look at these stories from 2,000 years later, and from our perspective, and that's the key, We look at guys like this synagogue leader and we think to ourselves, what's the matter with this guy? 
Like, seriously, what is wrong with him? I mean, and not just him, but all of these people who saw all of these amazing things that Jesus did in their day, good grief, he raises the dead, he walks on water, people. What more does he need to do? Like, how in the world could you reject him? How in the world could you be so angry with him, so threatened by him that you put him to death? That's where he's going. That's how the narrative continues here. What is the problem with these people? And the problem, if you think about it, is unmet expectations. What they expected that the coming Messiah would do and what the coming Messiah, when he came, did are two completely different things. See, they're expecting the Messiah to come and to politically and to militarily deliver them from Rome. Hey, Jesus, the miracles are nice, and we can see how that would be helpful to the military effort that we're waiting for you to bring. But it, it didn't come. I mean, even earlier on in the study of Jesus' life, John the Baptist, for crying out loud, sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the one or is there somebody else that we should be waiting for? Do you remember that? That's the question everybody's asking. It's great you can do all these things. And, you know, the woman with the spine, she's pretty jazzed about it. But what about Rome? And what do unmet expectations lead to? Every time, unmet expectations lead to anger. And if you don't believe me, then just look into your own anger, your own resentments, the things that you're bitter over. Dig down deep enough, and what you'll discover is that you expected one thing, and you got another, and you're ticked off about it. And in truth, the person you're ticked off about ultimately is God, because you understand that ultimately... He's sovereign and controls absolutely everything. And in truth, you know, you don't really like kind of what he's doing. And, and that means, that, ironically, that when you and I do that, and we all do that, we suffer from the exact same condition that this synagogue ruler and all of those other people suffered from. And what is that? Lack of perspective. The reason that we feel free to be critical of these people and we scratch our heads and go, what's the matter with you? Is because we know the rest of their story. We're looking back over 2,000 years. And for that matter, we know the rest of the story of Jesus, at least as it's played its way out thus far in history. And so we scratch our heads and think, man, how could you get this wrong? And then we get it wrong. As we doubt and become angry with the Lord and sit around wondering, man, are you the one? I mean, how do I reconcile what you're doing with what I'm expecting and, and with the deliverance that you've, you've promised to bring? You see, Jesus often behaves in unexpected ways, and he does it you know, all the time. And sometimes it's awesome. Like, please do more of those unexpected things, Lord. I'm all in on that. And that's great. And sometimes, at least from our perspective, it's not so awesome. From our perspective, it's confusing. It's disillusioning. It's depressing. It's difficult. And here's what following Jesus is in those moments. It means dying to our expectations about how he's going to behave and what he will and will not do, and trusting that from his perspective, it really does all make sense, and trusting as well that our day of deliverance, guys, really is going to come. We don't know how, we don't know when, but we know that it will, and we know also that when it comes, kind of like with this woman in this story, we're not going to be disappointed for having been made to wait because it will so far exceed 
every one of our expectations, which is really what Jesus here says next. Beginning in verse 18, Luke tells us, and Jesus said, therefore, it's coming right out of this story. What is the kingdom of God like? Because that's what everybody's wondering, all of them, all of us, at least at times. Because I don't know, Lord, I can't square what you're doing or not doing with the deliverance that, that I'm called to expect. Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? And then he tells us, he says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, one of the teeny tiniest little seeds that you could possibly find that a man took and sowed in his garden. And then, quite unexpectedly, it grew and became a tree from that? Oh yeah, and a tree so large, so lush, so full, that the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. The point being that it doesn't always look like much right now. But like, hang on. Because what's coming is huge. You ever seen a mustard seed? Go home today, like pull out, you know, the nine things of mustard that you've accumulated over the last 40 years that are in your refrigerator and find like the real dark, you know, thick, pasty and pour all the stuff, the liquid off the front because it's nasty. But, and then squirt out some of the stuff, you know, the one with the seeds in it and, and put a seed on your finger and take a look at the size of that seed. It's like a pinhead. You don't expect much when you put that in the ground, do you? Well, don't plant it next to your driveway. It'll mess your pavers up big time. Don't plant it next to your house unless you want to redo the foundation. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. You know, you look at it in this life, and at times, it honestly, it just doesn't look like much. You're just thinking, man, I hope the air conditioning doesn't blow this off my finger, because if it hits the carpet, I'll never find it. But that's not how it ends. And more than that, Jesus continues. He says again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took in what? Hid, you see, in three measures of flour, which is enough to feed about 150 people, incidentally. But the idea is she takes leaven and she hides it. And as we said a few weeks ago, when you put leaven into a lump of dough, you don't know that it's there. You can't see it, smell it, hear it, taste it, or touch it. You have no idea that it's actually mixed in with the dough. She's mixed it in. She hasn't told anybody. It's her little secret. It's hidden until you put it into the oven. And then you watch it blow the top off. That's the idea. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It doesn't always look like much in this life. But then it grows and it rises and it expands in massively unexpected ways. Jesus often behaves in unexpected ways in our lives in the here and now. And it's disappointing and it's a bummer. And, you know, sometimes it's awesome and it's wonderful, not going to lie. But a lot of times we look at it and go, this looks like a mustard seed to me. I'm going to put this in a little pot. It's about all I think it deserves. That's about as much as I expect. No, die to your expectations in that regard in terms of how Jesus is going to behave in this life. But man, have big expectations for the deliverance to come. Know that your deliverance comes. It does, you don't know how or when, but it will. And trust Trust that when it does, it will far exceed your expectations 
because the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It doesn't look like much now, but man, get out of the way because it's going to be awesome. It's like leaven. You had no idea when you put it in the oven that it would do this. It's marvelous. So you say, all right, well, then what do I do with this now? You know, And I wrote down four things that I hope are really an encouragement to you. You realize that the unexpected things that have bent you low in this life, and that happens, are not just physical, they're not just relational, they're not just financial, but they are, and even maybe primarily spiritual. God is doing a spiritual work in you. And there's a spiritual deliverance, perhaps, that needs to happen. Secondly, you remember that the Lord sees you in your bent low condition, because sometimes it kind of feels like no one does. Maybe not even him, but till this story comes to you and says, no, no, no. He sees those tucked away in the corner. He sees those ignored and invisible to everyone else. You are not invisible to him. One of the most glorious things to me about the the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, about the omnipresence of God, he is everywhere presence. The infinity of God is that God can give 100% of his attention to every single one of us 100% of the time. He doesn't have to call through the crowd to find you. His eye does not leave you. He sees you in your bent-over condition, and He sees not just your affliction, but your soul. And that's what really matters. He sees your faith. Number three, you should let go of the anger and resentment and bitterness that you feel toward the Lord, trusting that somehow from His perspective, at least your life right now makes sense, and humbling yourself by saying, you know what, my perspective is actually pretty limited. And the fact that I can't figure it out and see it all and make it all make sense and put all the pieces of the puzzle together, you know, probably shouldn't be that surprising. Guys, he's got it. Content yourself with that and take your heart and pour out all the poison of the anger and of the bitterness and of the resentments. Be free of that. Experience release from that. And then, lastly... Take hope, knowing that either in this day or in the next, your day of deliverance will, in fact, come. And in that day, like this woman, you won't be disappointed for having been made to wait. You'll be rewarded for having been made to wait. And what you will receive will far exceed your expectations. It's a mustard seed now, but it's a pig tree full of life then. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our wonderful Savior and for the fact that you did not leave us here, Lord, after we left you in our sin, but instead you sent him into this world that he might earn our righteousness, that he might pay our debt, that he might himself die that we might, through faith in Him, live. Lord, let us know Your forgiveness. Let us trust Your wisdom. Let us take the ways that life have bent us low and endure by the strength of Your Spirit in community with Your people and in confidence, knowing that, in fact, that wonderful Savior even now intercedes and advocates for us. God, let us draw strength from that. 
and let us know that the day of his return will come and it will be awesome. So encourage us this day, Lord, we pray with your gospel, with your word, with the story of this precious woman and how you worked in her and how you work in us. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the privilege this morning of coming to the Lord's table. And um, as I say, pretty much every time we do this, this is a table of forgiveness. You know, it's a table in which the emblems of our forgiveness, the body and the blood of our wonderful Savior are laid before us in physical form. He doesn't just preach the gospel to our ears. He preaches it to our fingers, to our taste, to our smell. He's interacting with all of these different senses that we might take it deeply into our soul and be healed by it. It's a table that requires you to take some time and to think about your sin, you know, and the ways that you're bent low. And you need deliverance to ask the Lord for those things and to trust what He does with your request. It's a time to talk to Him about all the things that you're kind of actually ticked off about and to confess in humility that it's merely the result of your lack of perspective. And to confess by faith that, you know what, from his perspective, it makes sense. And honestly, in the end, that's the one that matters. It's a time to come to his table and desire his presence. You know, John says, even so, Lord Jesus, come. What a wonderful prayer. And it's a table that calls you not just to remember what he's done, but that, in fact, he will one day come. He says to his disciples, I will not eat of the fruit of this table again until I eat it with you and with all of you. And the kingdom of heaven, that will in fact come. It's a table for the forgiven, meaning it's a table for those who have confessed their sin and humbled themselves before the Lord and said, you're right, I've blown it. I've lived for myself. I can't undo this. I can't make myself clean. And Jesus is who he is. And you know what? I can't ignore him anymore. And I need his forgiveness. And I want to give him my life that he might make much of it by using it to make much of him. If that's you, then by all means, you're commanded to come to the table and to receive its blessing. And if it's not, then by all means, stay where you are and consider that offer that it might be yours. It's a standing offer for all who want it, for all who receive it. Lastly, it's a table of unity. It's for any believer. You don't have to be a member of the church to do this. But it implies that we live well with each other in unity too. And so do business with the Lord over that. If there's somebody that you need to make good with, one of his children, then consider whether or not he would have you come to the table today. That's between you and him. Or if maybe he'd rather have you go fix that and then come next month. But in the meantime, the Apostle Paul said that this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, as we will all do now, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes again. So I'm going to pray, and you guys take your time, and then come forward when you're ready. Lord, we do thank you for uh, the sacrifice that emblematically lies before us. We thank you for the Savior, Lord, who gave his body and blood that we might eat and receive life. 
Lord, I pray that by the Spirit we might meet spiritually with him here in this meal, that we might come forward having confessed our sins, Lord, that we might walk away receiving emblems of our salvation and feeling the joy in our heart of knowing that it's all good, and not because of what we've done, but because of the sure and certain, undeniable, certified, accepted already work of our champion and of our Savior, who is Jesus. We have a wonderful Savior indeed. Lord, we pray that we would meet well with him now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.